How's it going, everyone? It's Kenneth here, and um, this podcast was recorded quite a while ago. I haven't had time to sort of go through it and edit it, but it is with uh, one of uh, my friends, Hannah Mansfield. It's a really interesting chat. Um, Hannah is an MNU certified nutritionist. She is a business owner. She's run her own business for um, five years, or at least her previous business, which she'll tell you a bit more about in the podcast. She is a competitive powerlifter, and uh, it was just really good to chat to someone about um, health in general. But we sort of did speak about you know the vegetable part of it and growing food, um, and how it all ties in together. So I won't keep you waiting too much longer. I hope you enjoy today's episode. And um, yeah, let's get into it. I guess I suppose you can start just by saying a bit about yourself, you know, just so everyone knows where you've come from and what you're doing and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm Hannah and um, I'm in Cheltenham as well. And um, for five years I ran my own um, juice and smoothie business. So I was surrounded by fruits and vegetables every day for five years. And um, I also really enjoy um, learning about nutrition and I um, also really enjoy um, exercise and fitness and strength training. Um, but right now I've moved on from my business and I'm working towards building up a nutrition um, coaching business and um, helping people get stronger and fitter as well. And, um, and I also have a big garden and I don't really know too much about how to uh, make the most of it at the moment but I'm learning. Yeah, I think uh, it's difficult to, I mean obviously it's a podcast, people are listening to this, when Hannah says she has a big garden you can fit like four or five houses in it, it's absolutely massive. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool though like when I walked in you, you can't even see the end of it when you walk into the garden, it kind of just goes on and on and on. And uh, I think it's an allotment holder's dream to have an, yeah. a garden that big that they won't actually need to have an allotment. But um, yeah, it's, you've got some raised beds and, you know, all different sections and it's sort of divided with some walls and things like that. Um, so what kind of stuff have you have you done this year? Because this is your first year here, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. We, we only moved in, in Jan- at the end of January. Mm. Um, but I just kind of threw some carrot seeds in, some lettuce seeds in and some courgettes because I heard they were pretty easy uh, to grow and um, there were also there were already some potatoes um, in in the bed so I just kind of let them stay there and do their thing and um, yeah we've been quite lucky really the um, courgettes have gone wild but I think that happens to everyone yeah. so um, uh, so they they were a success and there was already some rhubarb growing there and, and we've got quite a, a bit out of that mm. so um just waiting to see what the carrots will have in store for us for over the next month or so, I imagine. But yeah, it looks prom- looks promising. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think the way you've done it's really cool. Like the very first video I ever made on YouTube, it, it was horrible. If I look back at it now, I cringe. But one of the things I said is like everyone gets frightened of gardening. They think it's really difficult, and you kind of watch TV programs. I don't. What's that guy's name? Hugh Fernie Whittingsall. Is that his name? The uh, guy that's got River Cottage? Yes, yeah, River <laughs> yeah. Cottage, yeah. And you see his garden and it's just absolutely amazing. They think, oh, you need to be really good and you need to have the skill. But sometimes you really just need to chuck seeds in the ground. Yeah. And just by looking, I mean, you've got carrots growing and carrots are, can be quite tricky to grow sometimes. They've got like a really spotty germination. So, I mean, we've just planted four rows of carrots and all of them died. 
every single oh. one. And we had like rows and compost and it was all like measured. <laughs> and ev- every, I mean, a lot of our other carrots are fine, but every single one of those. Yeah. And those were going to be our winter carrots like to last us to like January. Mm. And it was just like, what the hell did we do wrong? But, you know, it, sometimes um, being a bit too precious about gardening makes it more difficult. Sure. Yeah. And like you said with the courgettes, we... Um, we did a podcast a few podcasts ago and we were like oh we'll have like seven courgette plants and we just had too many it was mm. you need like one or two yeah really you know if it's just for like you and some friends or your and your family you yeah know. absolutely yeah um so yeah just sort of trying to get to grips with with it all really and um hopefully next year i'll have learned a thing or two and be a little bit more adventurous and be a bit more um sort of diligent with my weeding and um pest control perhaps yeah yeah there's a lot of i think there's always a lot of work in the beginning like to set everything up is the hardest you know and like you guys have just moved in and that's quite a stressful thing as well um you know so i think once you next year you'll be able to hit the ground running you'll be here from the beginning of spring really early you would have settled in the house really so it'll probably Mm. be easier to um to get into the swing of things yeah, I made yeah. the mistake. Um, I thought I'd get out into the garden. It, was, it must have been um, late February, early March, perhaps. I thought I'll get out there and at least I'll just tackle the weeds so that they're just clear, empty beds so that if I want to do something with them over the next month or two, I can. And um, so I literally just emptied the beds of everything that mm. was growing there, except for the rhubarb that was there because that was just too massive to know what yeah. to do with. Um, but anyway, um, so I pulled up a load of just sort of random leaves and plants and I didn't really know what constituted a weed and I just thought if it's still growing here in the middle of February, it shouldn't be. So it's probably a weed. And, um, it turned out later on in the summer that I discovered what a strawberry plant looked like. (laughs) And I thought, no, I emptied a whole, I think it must've even been two beds full of strawberries. And then my husband said to me, actually, I remember the lady who we bought the house from told us that the, there are some good strawberries in the garden and they should come out quite nicely next year. I was like, I don't remember that. <laughs> and, oh, and strawberries are one of my absolute favourites. Yeah, my background, you know, working with fruit and vegetables, yeah. I, I, I will turn any fruit and veg into something, you know, hopefully edible. Yeah. And, um, oh, what I could have done with a load of strawberries, but... It still makes me a little bit sad to yeah. think about they're the strawberries re- that once were. They're really hardy as well. You might find that they might come back. You never know. I mean, we had... No, they had long gone. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so you, like, really got them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I've actually managed to get a few strawberry plants from my dad's. Um, he had done some... Uh, what's it? Is it? Like cuttings? Yeah, or, some yeah, cuttings. Yeah. yeah, so he'd managed to sort of propagate a few and um, I nicked them. Yeah. <laughs> and planted them out and we got like three strawberries <laughs> so I think oh that those amazing plants that I thought were weeds yeah and, um, we've never devastated. had luck we've never had luck with strawberries although when we took the, the our first allotment on there was a huge patch of strawberries and we like we don't know if we'll keep them like it was yeah. a massive bed so we just pulled them all out and we've actually well we thought we did but we've had some grow in between the raised beds just out of nowhere really okay. yeah so I don't think we'll we won't do them on the ground. If we ever do do them, we'll raise them up off, you know, on like some kind of raised bed like you mm-hmm. have in your garden. Um, I was going to say something now about uh, something... Oh, something I was really interested in and I've read about, talking about like your background in 
you know, selling smoothies and, and juices and that kind of thing <clears throat> is the whole thing about organic vegetables versus non-organic vegetables. Okay. And I think there's a lot of sort of people that are, you only can, should only have organic and all that kind of thing. I'd like to hear your opinion, especially coming from the nutrition side of it. Yeah. What you think, um, is it necessary? Because a lot of people out there, I wouldn't, I mean, I don't know what a lot of people think, but maybe they think, well, organic stuff's really expensive, but, you know, they force themselves to buy it because they think it's better for them. Mm. But from a nutritional point of view, do you think that's always necessarily the case? Uh, well, from what I'm understanding, um, based on, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm just finishing up, actually, a, um, a certification in an evidence-based nutrition course. So we delve quite deeply into a lot of these issues that... Um, potential clients or even ourselves as practitioners like certain beliefs we might hold about particular um things to do with nutrition and food and obviously organic mm. is, is one that comes up time and time again and it turns out there aren't any um sort of nutritional benefits to organic generally especially really in terms of fruits and vegetables um it's more of a preference mm. thing and to be honest if it's the deal breaker between you eating fruit and veg and not at all you may as well just have the you know the conventionally conventionally grown um stuff and, and not worry about it um obviously there will always be people who have particular sensitivities yeah. um I've, i'm definitely aware at least of anecdotal reports of um people with uh conditions like um like adhd and autism and by some um, chance the uh, particular pesticides or um, whatever agents that have been used to grow certain fruits and vegetables can really build up in some people's systems mm. and, and cause these kind of conditions to develop. I've heard of this anecdotal stuff, um, but for the general population it's not a health, a nutritional concern anyway. Maybe ethically for people, if mm. they're concerned maybe about the state of the environment and things that are being sprayed and then the quality of crops and how things kind of uh, cycle and stuff, I guess. Um, but I think that's probably more of a problem for the experts who are in charge of, you know, producing food rather than as consumers just wanting to at least get their basic nutrition under control. Yeah. Um, it's not something people should be tying themselves in knots over. Um, and obviously sometimes if as someone who's trying to grow stuff themselves in their garden I've not used any kind of pesticides or anything this year but purely because I wouldn't know where to start and mm -hmm. you know what would be safe we have dogs in the garden so I wouldn't want to do anything that might be toxic to them so and but it's not been out of me desperately wanting organic vegetables so I think it, you know, it's a preference. It's a label, and it gets abused a bit as well. Definitely. So yeah, you have to be careful. Even if you think, well, at least I'm getting organic. Mm. You might not be anything um, particularly different about it compared to the the conventional, you know, cheaper stuff. Yeah. So it is a, a difficult one. Like the one thing that attracts me to small farming the most is, I think you'd probably get more value from buying food that's fresher than something that's organic so if you mm. if you buy a carrot or whatever it may be from someone that picked it two days ago you'll probably find that carrots 
better or just as good as an organic one because you might get an organic carrot that's come from 4,000 miles away and it's taken two weeks to get to you. Yeah, you know, that's so. definitely a factor that people have to be thinking about if they're yeah. concerned about um, the, the, the journey of their food and where it's come from and how it got to them. Mm then, you know, even if it has, like, the purest ancestry or, yeah. or you know, you know the, the best possible upbringing or whatever, you know, and that this applies to meat as well, even. Yeah. Um, you know, in certain countries they have, um, you know, different regulations about what they can get away with doing with um, livestock and stuff. But, um, yeah, I kind of forget where I was going with that. But I think you're right that the... the journey you know the shorter the better and yeah. um and also just supporting local people you know making the best of their local environment and yeah that's what's it. available to them mm-hmm. something you said about that you haven't used pesticides um this year when you're growing on a smaller scale in your garden i just find that there's less need for that anyway because mm-hmm. you're right there and it's easily managed yeah. so like on a, on a 400 acre farm where they're growing wheat a farmer isn't going to go and pick all the weeds from the no, field. Yeah. He's never going to be able to do it, even if he had a work workforce. First of all, it's too expensive to pay people to do it. And consumers want cheap vegetables. They want cheap food. They want cheap mm. bread and flour. So, you know, pesticides almost have to be used because yeah. it, it, it's... You can, I can argue with people sometimes because they think, oh, it, it has to be done organically. It's like, well, if you want cheap food in the supermarkets, it can't. It's mm. just unrealistic when there's almost 8 billion people yeah, on the planet. Yeah, if you want to feed everyone <laughs> yeah, exactly. to a reasonable standard yeah. quality, then yeah. Well, that's why on a smaller scale, it's definitely easier. I mean, because mm. you've got raised beds and although your garden's really big, like you said earlier, you could probably spend an afternoon and get rid of most of the weeds and, you know, you can stay on top of it. And same with pests, you know, you can go and handpick slugs and things like that. Mm. And you'll never be able to get rid of all the pests. You know, there's some things you just can't see, like carrot fly and all that kind of thing. But... Um, it's certainly more manageable um, at a smaller scale. And even some of the smaller farmers that I follow, um, they don't waste their time trying to get organic certification because, like you said, it's just a label. You know, yeah. their farms are small enough that they don't need to use pesticides. Um, if they lose a bed of crops, it's not a huge financial knock. Um, so they can just, it's easier for them to get rid of them and just replant them uh, if they have to, if pest damage is, is that bad. Mm. Um, it's just crazy that you have to pay an organization to have that label on your yeah. food, whereas it doesn't necessarily mean it's better than just a conventionally grown vegetable. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, certainly from a nutrition standpoint, there, there isn't um, like a massive body of evidence that would say that organic has any nutritional, um, you know, that it's not nutritionally superior, mm. you know, in, even in terms of vitamin content or anything like that. Um, that there, re- there really isn't the evidence to support that case yeah. so it's not something that people should be getting too worried about yeah yeah. I was going to say something else about that now I can't <laughs> remember don't worry I'll, I'll edit out the awkward moments <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't um, what was I going to say I can't remember now it was on the tip of my tongue and I forgot it yeah anyway so have you guys like have you got plans for next year for your garden anything in particular or well, we are in the process because we also, as well as these raised beds and different parts of our garden, we've got fruit trees as well. Um, there are some buildings out there which we are looking to develop, which will be form the basis um, for my business, as in you know, offering nutrition support and um, sort of training and strength coaching um, in my garden, and because um, I, I 
I enjoyed when I had my business I actually lived in the flat over the shop so I actually quite like being really closely connected to my business and mm. my my clients and my customers um, so I want to kind of recreate that with these new um, new services that I'm going to be uh, providing the people with um, so the garden will it will depend on what happens with the building work I think mm. and also if I have clients sort of coming to me and accessing through the garden and I want the garden to be sort of presentable and I would actually really love to be in a position where I was giving regular clients little veg boxes um, yeah. you know if if what I've been able to produce either on my own or with um, help from friends and family um, if they want to because <laughs> um, there are a lot of people who are keen to garden but they just don't have the space so yeah. I'd, I'd be more than willing to just let you know, people I trust come and do their thing and mm. um, and then just split the um, the produce but um, so yeah what ha- whatever happens with the garden will kind of depend on the progression of that side of of our um, our life but um, I have enjoyed getting out in the garden and just at least trying yeah and so I can't just abandon it uh, you know I, I you know I I've not it's not been such a bad experience that I'd want to give up, mm. but there have been things that have been frustrating, such yeah. as weeds and um, having to walk quite far down. <laughs> yeah. Maybe um, catch a taxi to get to the yeah, early Yeah, exactly. I was like, maybe I should just have a sprint track as part of my home gym and just yeah. have a 100-metre track for people to do some sprints along. <laughs> um, but no, I wouldn't do that to them. So... Um, so yeah, it will just have to have to see really, because mm. um, I think there's uh, quite a few things that I, I still don't really know necessarily know what's worth keeping and what from the people who had the house before. Mm. Um, so we after the strawberry incident, I was quite keen to let anything and everything grow just in case it was something yeah. worth keeping. Yeah, and um, and yeah, I've not had anything quite the same as the strawberry incident occur, but. Or nothing quite so exciting has popped up that yeah. I think, oh, thank goodness, I didn't um, <laughs> didn't bin that. But uh, yeah, we'll just kind of play it by ear, mm. I think, and see what what inspires us. And also, depending on the weather as well. Yeah. If we have a particularly cold winter, I can't see myself wanting to, or you know, or even into spring if it's still quite chilly. I can't imagine that I want to get out there too much yeah it isn't nice I mean everything gets if you're digging in the soil as well it gets really hard and yeah. it becomes 10 times more difficult to achieve the same thing as if the weather's good yeah yeah the one thing I thought though when you're mentioning turning those little um buildings into like gym areas and coaching areas I think it would be really really um inspirational for your clients to come here and see your garden mm. um especially if you're teach them about nutrition they can see well actually it's not that difficult to grow your own vegetables yeah you know you don't have to have loads and loads for it to, to mean anything like having a few courgette plants and a bit of strawberries and some potatoes and carrots that's a lot you know yeah if you had to buy that throughout the year you'd spend a lot of money whereas if you just got it in your garden it's right there you can pick it and eat it that same day yeah um and anyone that's looking to learn about that kind of stuff that comes to you They'd prob- we'd probably find a lot of inspiration in that. Um, yeah. I think it's a well, really... they'd be welcome to take one of the beds on if they were that <laughs> yeah. keen. Yeah, I think so, it'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Just an opportunity for people to combine, um, so their their nutrition and just general well being mm. with actual hands on practical household stuff. Really, isn't it? Because yeah. you know it's 
it's just it's been a total um sort of revelation really for the over the summer we 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 didn't grow any on we've not had any onions in the we're growing they wouldn't be around this time of year really mm. anyway i believe um no you'd be planting onions now yeah. for harvest next year so like so then yeah. we've been buying we've had to buy onions mm. um we didn't i did plant some pepper seeds but they didn't go anywhere so we have had to buy things like those kind of vegetables and tomatoes but generally everything you know we just make do with what's there and yeah. from friends and family that grow as well and we've had loads of runner beans and tomatoes and cucumbers from friends and family so mm. it's all like all the veg we've eaten over the summer pretty much has been um like just sort of locally grown stuff and because we've had stuff to to swap with them yeah um it's been quite a nice sort of sort of two-way street mm. The only problem is then we go to the supermarket and it looks like we don't eat any fruit and vegetables because, you know, it's the, the trolley's just filled with, like, I don't know, all the other kind of stuff you buy, whether it's, yeah. like, um, you know, your porridge oats or, you know, milk and things like, things like that, which, you know, it's fine, but it looks like we eat no vegetables because um, we've been eating the fruit out of the garden as well, the apples yeah. and pears over the last month and raspberries. Um so yeah it's just kind of transformed what we feel is necessary to buy in a shop now so yeah. I, I would miss that now i think if we didn't have it so yeah i think you, you also learn to eat more seasonally when you grow your own yeah. stuff i mean again like you were saying you still have to buy certain things and it's almost unrealistic to, to expect anyone that's going to grow their own vegetables that they're going to be able to grow everything yeah you know and not even medium or small size farms grow everything because some stuff just takes too long and if they're doing it for money you know some growing and selling onions isn't profitable unless you're growing loads of them you know mm-hmm. um and to grow 10 onions in your garden isn't really worth it you have to grow 100 you know and that takes up a lot of space mm-hmm. so there'll always be something you'll have to buy but you kind of you like you said you make do with what you grow so you've got lots of courgettes you can make a courgette soup you can make chutney out of it and you can have courgette and yeah things i've done with courgettes for <laughs> yeah. the last couple of months it's like you wouldn't believe i put it in like a banana bread cake oh, it's really? been in sweet recipes and savory yeah it's really good for brownies and things as well isn't yeah. it because you know that it's a lot kind of moist, thing. like quite moist and yeah. um, just adds sort of fiber and mm. um sort of a fudginess yeah and softness so yeah been quite experimental and things like courgettes actually have been quite quite sort of easy to just sort of sneak into anything i don't have children but i feel like if they did and they were picky eaters courgettes would be an easy thing you could mm. just take a grater grate it up quite fine and then just chuck it in any kind of pasta sauce yeah. um anything like that where you're just cooking down a lot of things all at once you know if it's got like a nice tomato sauce on it and you you wouldn't notice that you were squeezing in like extra vegetables and mm. yeah the, the and scrambled eggs good. you could do it yeah great yeah. to scrambled yeah, eggs yeah yeah, yeah omelettes um yeah you could just slice it and, mm. and put them in omelettes so yeah lots of easy things you can do with courgettes but then people do get a bit uninspired i think eventually yeah Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It, it's right. been a recurring yeah. theme speaking about courgettes on the videos, on the podcast, because they're just yeah. one of those vegetables you literally only need one plant. Yeah. It's, uh, but you, people get excited. I think they're a good vegetable to start with because they're so easy. Yeah, and yeah. the flowers are really beautiful. So they kind yeah. of, they're good aesthetic as well. Yeah. 
And um, actually, we just returned from my dad's house. It's just only lives around the corner. He's on holiday, but we like to keep go and keep an eye on his uh, on his little crop to see if there's anything worth picking while he's away. It's an enormous marrow. Really. <laughs> and I just like we'll save that for him when he gets yeah. home and see what he thinks. See if you, he comes up with anything. You can make rum out of marrow, and I actually looked at can doing you? it. Yeah, we. How we'll be up for that. We had a massive, also like probably about that big, and I was like, oh, maybe I should make some rum. And I went and read the recipe and I was like, I'm not waiting two years when I can go. Two <laughs> years! Well, you've got to like hollow it out and put like uh, demerara sugar in and then it starts like fermenting and the thing like disintegrates and then you've got to put it through muslin cloth and then leave it in the... Yeah. Some, oh, I was like, it's just too much effort. Uh, he's <laughs> retired. I think he'd be up for that. Yeah. <laughs> I just remembered what I was going to ask you earlier, actually. Oh. We were talking about nutrition and like organic versus sort of conventional farming. Uh, something... I wouldn't say I'm like a health guru, but I do definitely, I'm interested in health and nutrition. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that drives me really, really crazy about um, the industry is that there's so much information that comes out all the time that makes it confusing for people. Yeah. And although I, I always take a lot of it with a pinch of salt, because I think a lot of the times it's common sense, you know. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people don't know. They just have no clue. And they get sucked into these things uh, and these fads and these diets that are meaningless. Yeah. And what is your take on, on that when it comes to, to nutrition and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. So where I come from, I've tried a lot of different things over the last 10 years or so. And I was just kind of had a... a sort of a passing interest in nutrition and then the more I got into exercise and um, and and getting stronger and doing these kind of uh, like sort of more sporting in- endeavours mm-hmm. the more into nutrition I got and I tried a lot of different things so I've been vegetarian I've been vegan I've been pescatarian I've done the flip side and been paleo which is um, more of a, a meat based diet not not heavily heavily meat mm. but it, it emphasizes it emphasizes it because you also, you you give up on things like grains and a lot of starchy carbohydrates so you yeah. have to fill the gaps with extra protein um, so yeah I've tried a lot of things I've been my own sort of experiment but now I'm I'm taking taking on nutrition from a more scientific uh, standpoint basically what most things come down to if you're thinking about the fundamental things if the almost like the universal truths of nutrition is eat sort of enough variety Mm. um cook as much as you you know from scratch and not relying too much on processed junk stuff yeah um it, it can have a place and it won't you know be um super detrimental to your health if it's not the mainstay of your diet you know if, if you enjoy you know a takeaway or have a particular chocolate that you you know like to indulge in like even if it's you know more regularly than you feel it should be <laughs> um you know as long as the the remainder of your diet and you know you're eating within a calorie or just sort of an energy requirement that mm. meets your body's needs um because things like um gaining too much body weight um that's a you know much more of a concern for developing uh, preventable uh, you know diseases you know heart heart problems or diabetes the actual you know excess body weight itself is much more of a concern than the actual content of the diet as long as it was eaten within an energy requirement that was actually appropriate for that person to maintain their body weight that would have been more important and beneficial for them to be maintaining their weight rather than 
gaining weight, even if their diet was, you know, really rich in, you know, lots of different types of meats or full fat dairy, which, you know, has loads of health benefits, but eaten to excess to a point where you're gaining weight, that's when, you know, nutritional, you know, where, um, uh, like various like health concerns would, would come into, you know, come into play. Mm. So it really is, yeah, like I'm saying, the basics, you know, in terms of um, variety, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, protein, um, it gets really severely underplayed. And in terms of national um, requirements, I think so it's something like 50 grams per day for a woman and maybe 70 to 80 grams for a man. And really, we could, um, you, you could eat probably double to triple that and be perfectly healthy, if not healthier. Um, there's different types of you know, areas within the population, different yeah. demographics that benefit from more, older people benefit from more protein. Mm. And, um, and, you know, different, if they're physically active or, you know, if people are on a diet and they're trying to lose weight, the more protein that they can fit into a calorie allowance that's allowing them to lose weight, you know, the more satiated they will feel, the more they will retain um, muscle mass and bone density. So there's there's wins all across the board in terms of protein, but it gets really um, downplayed in terms of what we hear maybe about it in the media or from the government. So that's a big one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where people find it so confusing is because there's conflict in information. And you, you, if you read what the government says about what they think, you know, your whatever should be every day, mm. you think, oh, that doesn't sound right. But a lot of people will just take it for, you know, I, we trust the government, so we need to listen to what they say. But, you know, it doesn't always fit everyone. You know, one size doesn't fit all, like mm. you said. So the older you get, you probably benefit from changing your diet slightly yeah. to your age. Mm. You know, and same with younger kids. You wouldn't feed... A younger kid the same thing as you'd feed someone that's in their 20s because their nutritional and you know their, their requirements for growing are different you know yeah. kids growing they need more of something else or less of something else yeah, you know it's exactly. um it's really tricky and um I, i've kind of from reading your posts on facebook and a few other people i, I find that more people more nutritionists and more people involved in the industry um are becoming a bit more um less hardcore on their ideas and more like well everyone's different you need to make allowances and don't hate yourself if you have that bar of chocolate on a Saturday night and don't kick yourself for this and you know it's and then on the flip side you see these people on Instagram that are like oh you need to go to the gym every single day and you need to do this and you can't eat that and it it must be so difficult for someone out there that's trying to learn about it um, if they're not getting the right information from the right people exactly I mean and it like I'm saying, there is the you're like sorry as 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 you are saying, there is um you know definitely a need for individualized approaches when it comes to nutrition. Even though there are these global sort of things you can sort of safely say are, are generally healthy for most people to mm. do, um, the there is such an increasing body of um sort of scientific research that we, so a lot of these claims about you know severely you know whether it's really low carbohydrate or really high carbohydrate or you know or fat or you know all these different things you know whether you're cutting out dairy whether you're cutting out gluten um which has its place for some people but it's not necessary for most people Mm. and um so there's all these claims now that are totally unsubstantiated by the growing body of research Mm. so 
my position as an evidence-based practitioner means that um, we go into what the, um, the current body of research has to say about a particular claim and um, whether that's research that's been done in the lab or based on um, popula- you know, observing populations and there, you know, there are different methodologies that are more or less reliable and you've got statistics and yeah. there, there's, there's layers and layers to this stuff but um, generally as, as an evidence-based approach I think you're, all the dogmatic, zealot-type people are losing ground because they can't support their um, their claims. Yeah. But there will, there will always be people who like to follow their particular nutrition religion. and um, <laughs> Nutrition religion, I like that. It's like, they, they, yeah, it's like when people ask, oh, do you believe in um, gluten-free? Do you believe in low-fat diet? And it's like, it's not something you either believe or don't believe in. It's does the evidence support this and is it suitable for this particular individual who has maybe has a particular health problem or a psychological um issue around mm. the diet um so so yeah it's it's combining the 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 science scientific claims and support for a particular nutrition nutritional approach yeah. and and how it fits with an individual and their and their lifestyle and what will bring them the most health from both a physical and a mental position a point of view so yeah yeah it's really tricky i was listening to another podcast this week and they were talking about michael phelps and i think he eats something like eight thousand calories a day that's a lot of yeah. calories just for but the thing is you look at him you know he probably trains and swims all the time and I'm not 100% sure on this, you might be able to clarify more, but I'm sure swimming requires a huge amount of energy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, as opposed to maybe a different kind of exercise. And sometimes you think, well, people will see that and think, oh, I'm going to be like Michael Phelps, I'm going to start eating 7,000 calories a day. Two months down the line, or three months down the line, they put on a huge amount of weight and they yeah. can't figure it out. <laughs> like, what? why? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. eating so much, I came and I'm, I'm swimming. But, you know, they, they take, they, they don't understand his context of what's going on in his life. Yeah, you know, um, it's the the um the energy expenditure for these elite level athlete, elite level athletes mm. is just not even close to just even your average fit person who maybe exercises three to five times a week. The, the Michael Phelpses of the world they're doing you know two to three training sessions a day. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I, I'm surprised they actually find the time to consume that many calories. Yeah, and, and for you know for their diet to be so dense in energy. The types of foods they have to be eating probably aren't actually that um, necessarily that healthy. You know, taking, taking mm. you know, try and eat you know seven thousand calories of vegetables. It's impossible. Or, or lean protein. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you know, but try and fit it in in terms of you know sugary sweets or you know anything that's kind of, you know even if it's a a carbohydrate sauce like rice but you know you drizzle it in like a nice sweet chilli sauce or or, you know some kind of nice sticky barbecue Mm. sauce or something like that and you can eat way more of it than you could have just plain rice yeah so they have to do things to their food to make it more palatable to make it easier to consume more dense so they're not digesting food imagine going into the pool and then coming out and then eating like a 3,000 calorie meal and then knowing you've got to go back in the pool again in yeah. three, four hours time, you know, you want something that's going to digest. So there's all these things in terms of nutrition for athletes mm. versus, um, you know, your average person who's just trying to maintain their body weight, um, be healthier, perform better at their particular sport or yeah. within their job. 
uh, look after their family's health. It's just a, a totally different... The world of sports nutrition, which I am interested in as, as someone who does... Um, I, I actually do competitive powerlifting, so I, I do factor in my nutrition quite a lot into my training, but it's it, I, I try to prioritise my nutrition in terms of my sort of ability to enjoy my life, like my a quality yeah. of life perspective more than the sports nutrition perspective, mm. just because that's my personal sort of values. Yeah. Um, but for some athletes, it's, it's, you know, are they getting that gold medal? So yeah. They yeah. do whatever it takes. It's their life, isn't it, really? Yeah. They've, they've trained yeah. probably since they were like teenagers or even younger. You know, yeah. they've been in the pool since they could swim sort of thing. You know, for example, like Michael Phelps. Mm. Um, something, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, so I do jiu-jitsu and I, I don't focus on my nutrition too much based on it but something I'm always aware of before I train is when I eat and I'm, I sometimes find it quite difficult to get that balance so the other day I think I had a, a slightly earlier lunch and I got really busy at work and I didn't have a, a like a mid-afternoon snack and I got to training and I was really weak I could feel like I was coming to the point where I needed to eat something okay but then on the flip side yesterday I had a really late lunch I'm like oh it's four o'clock I'm training two hours should I have eaten that much it's yeah. um something I find quite difficult to get to grasp with sometimes because yeah. what's going to be the right snack should I have you know I, I enjoy cashew nuts, so, you know, shouldn't eat them too much, I suppose. But that's my go-to snack in the afternoon because yeah. I can get a small packet and it, it fills you up enough that you don't have to have too much of them. But it's like, oh, is that the right snack? Should I have had protein rather or should I have had some carbs instead? You know, it's uh, it definitely is a minefield, especially if you want to progress, like you said, at a higher level. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there, is, there are going to be so many other factors that will determine your ability to progress, I think, before mm. nutrition becomes a thing. Uh, nutrition is invested a lot in elite level sports, but that's because the the, the fraction of percentage difference that means the difference between winning that medal and not even qualifying mm. is, is insane. So um, for the average sort of person wanting to keep fit and... It, the, the actual quality of the training and you know the coaching that you're receiving will probably be far more important mm. um, but yeah it is difficult because it does come down to an individual thing there are some some core things that are backed by research you know carbohydrates are a preferred energy source um, but then you can also do things to manipulate your carbohydrate and um, consume more fat and protein on certain days instead mm. Which then, if your body is then having to rely on a different um, fuel source instead of the one that it would prefer, mm. it has to adapt itself in other ways. But these are sort of cellular things, and in in terms of research, they're still quite um, they're still trying to figure things out and what the most optimal protocol would be for. Mm. And then you've got endurance athletes versus your you know, your, your um, combat sports or your power sports. Mm. Um, you know, all these different sort of endeavours and, and they have different sort of um, uh, energy requirements and yeah there's, there's so many different factors but yeah. um, my preference is carbohydrate before training and this morning I went to the gym hadn't eaten eaten before it's like I hardly ever go to the gym without eating but I did that this morning and I was just not in a good place yeah I've, I've done it once I, I thought yeah. oh, I'm gonna we it was a Sunday and I was like oh, I'm gonna go to jiu-jitsu you know eight o'clock I won't bother eating I'll just have a you know small cup of coffee yeah. and I just couldn't it was I have to yeah. eat before I, I do anything but like some that. people are the, are the opposite yeah. and if they, they eat something before they're you know they um 
the effect of having to digest food either doesn't sit well in the stomach, you know, and you don't really want to be exerting yourself mm. in that in, under those circumstances, or the actual um, process of digestion is so um, demanding on the body that there's no energy. You know, that's why in the afternoon you might get a bit of a slump. It's a bit of a myth, this insulin spike. Mm oh blood sugar crash type stuff you hear about about the, the four o'clock slump in the afternoon where everyone wants to reach for a chocolate bar really you're kind of coming down for, you've had your lunch you digested it and now you'd quite like a nap yeah. because that was quite exhausting having to digest that mm. massive lunch that you probably didn't need thank you very much because yeah. <laughs> you know most of us have sedentary jobs and we don't always need you know i've heard some of the sandwiches and meal deals you can go and get from like Boots or Marks and Spencers, you could be having a thousand calories for lunch and not even realizing. Yeah. And that's, you know, more than half, no, about half of what a woman needs to maintain their weight. Yeah. And in just like a sandwich, a packet of crisps, and maybe a little bottle of juice or, or a little chocolate bar or something. Mm. Um, it depends on your choices. But, um, so yeah, so, but that effect of digesting, uh, depending on the size of the meal, can be quite fatiguing yeah and so that's why we get this um effect of uh, fatigue in the middle of the afternoon it's not really a blood sugar or insulin situation in fact if your insulin's function if you're a healthy person your insulin should be increasing and decreasing because otherwise your blood sugar would be all over the place because yeah. the insulin needs to needs to needs to work against to um to neutralize or to help modulate the increases and decreases in blood sugar mm. sorry that's probably a little bit no, too much. this is good revision for me actually because <laughs> so i've got exams next in the next couple of weeks yeah um so yeah we, we kind of maybe do sort of fixate on little deep details and aspects of our diet you know whether it is to do with um our physical activity our sport you know sporting goals or performance at work mm. as well um and so yeah people are always looking for answers and what what's the the thing that's going to work for me and yeah you might find something that works for you now but if say you switch to a different job or a different um pattern or you have a you know you're stressed for some other reason and then it all gets thrown off again and then there's just you know you're always chasing something so you might feel like you've cracked the code and then something else will come along and just mess it up for you (laughs) flip the table what, yeah, like you, I try to do things based on how I feel sometimes, yeah. you know, and I know when I've overdone it. You know, we had a cheeky KFC last night, and I didn't feel that great afterwards, and I, it was just too much. You know, having a, like you said, every now and then you have something that you shouldn't really have, and last night I definitely overindulged. Yeah. And you can feel it, and then you say, well, you know, next time if we have a, a cheeky takeaway, I'll maybe you won't have so much, and, you know, I'll probably feel a bit better. Mm. Um, you know, and I, even after I train, whatever we have for dinner, I an hour afterwards, I always say, so how do I feel now? Do I feel like I've eaten enough? Do I feel like I should have had more? What did we have? How can I balance that next time? And um, too many people rely on fad diets when they don't focus on what's happening with them. Mm. Yeah, intuition is really important and it's something that a lot of people lose mm. um, by, you know, going through maybe fad diets and also just, you know, coming back to just the whole you know sort of the global environment around food and every you know we leave the house or wherever we go we're bombarded by you know um, reminders of food and drink mm. and things that might be particularly um 
delicious or smell really good yeah. or you know or you know really kind of tick the, the boxes things that we're craving so um so we're just surrounded by it all the time so the the intuition the hunger signals and satiety um all those kind of things things that we, the t- the taste of things we actually enjoy mm. you know we our taste buds get kind of numbs because we get you know over over stimulated or um, you know, by things that are excessively sugary or have been artificially enhanced in some way. Um, it's quite interesting. I was watching one of these programs. I don't really watch much TV at all, but there was um, a BBC one where they were going into people's houses and trying to get them to steer away from having really expensive branded food and get and convince them that swapping to cheaper versions was better. I saw that at Curie Spokes House, actually. Yeah, yeah and I, 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 I don't really watch much TV, but I quite like watching things where people are being challenged on their on their um, relationship with food. Mm. So, so there, these people are they're, they're trying maybe their I think it was like a an orange juice or something in one particular episode and so this guy's been given an unbranded bottle of that orange juice he doesn't know if it's maybe the one he has all the time or something completely different a cheap version mm. so he's drinking away drinking this unknown orange juice this mystery juice and he's like no no way this is what i normally have this tastes cheap nasty no way and you know you, you know what i'm gonna say they they turn around to him and say this is exactly what you spend three pound a week you know three pound a carton on every yeah. time and you get through like four or five of these a week That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> just because that whole um the illusion was broken so his mm. his intuition for what tasted good um had been totally um distorted by perception of branding and, and just flashy messages and yeah and what he thought maybe because he was paying more for it that it was a quality thing mm. but growing your own vegetables you know, bringing it back to that you you know you've not this, you've put a lot of effort in but in terms of monet- monetarily you've not invest, had to invest necessarily a great amount yeah um, and it's you know superior in you know in terms of taste and quality most of the time I imagine but we are I think you you get to grow unusual varieties again complete change but mm. something I can't remember if I mentioned it in a podcast or in a video um, but you go to the shops and most of the courgettes you see are all the same but mm. there's hundreds of different varieties that are really unusual and so much nicer um, so you get to experiment with what you what you grow and what you eat um, yeah. the variety we grew this year was Italian and um like the best thing about it is that it maintains its sort of structure when you cook it. So sometimes mm. courgette can get quite mushy, mushy yeah. but it just stayed really crispy. You could bake it, fry it, do whatever, and it still kept that um, that crunchy texture. Yeah. And um, I always wonder why you don't see a bigger variety in the supermarkets. But you know they grow what grows the easiest, and a lot of it's um, sort of hybrid vegetables, mm. so they're not necessarily um, heirloom. But you know if they've got certain characteristics that make yeah. them easier to grow or whatever. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you, you feel about when they um, have to get rid of things that have been like maybe they're misshapen or they don't tick all the boxes mm. of the particular variety they're trying to sell because that's what the public expects. Say a carrot, everyone yeah. is you, you know, stereotypical carrot. Mm. But obviously there's, there's so many, there's hundreds of ways to have a carrot, yeah, I exactly. suppose. Some of the um, ones we got were crazy. So yes, yeah, yeah. but, but it'll be interested to see what your take on... People like getting you know, things getting thrown away mm. and and the waste that goes in. But then also there's quite a, a new initiative I've noticed. Um, even in I saw it in, in in a Morrison's a couple of weeks ago, 
um, they would re sort of purpose not repurposed vegetables but um, re marketed them as wonky vegetables yeah. and they were cheaper than the others and I thought well, they're going to taste just the same exactly yeah and they didn't they didn't even look like there was anything wrong with them they looked just this they think it was peppers because we can't get hold of them locally no. now so um uh, yeah, we got this bag full of wonky peppers for a quid. There's yeah. like six or seven peppers in it's there. Really they were good, perfectly fine. Yeah. So, yeah. I think it's the consumer's fault and the supermarket's fault. Um, but I, it, it, that's on a very basic level. So I think it also comes down to um, economics. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this, but this mm. is just my own thoughts, my own thinking. And I always stress this because I hate when people say, oh, but you're not an expert. I know I'm not an expert. <laughs> But so, for example, when when a farmer uh, or when a company develops a seed that, for a certain vegetable, they often grow hybrids. So a hybrid um, vegetable would be a cross between two different varieties and they get bred for certain characteristics. So they could have a resistance to a disease or to a certain weather um, or, you know, one could grow faster than the other. So they breed the two different um varieties and they get a certain new variety with a specific characteristic and it could be for both of them or for one of them or, or, or anything like that and because the population of the world is so big there is a requirement to produce a certain amount of food in a very short time of space you know depending on where you are in the world obviously now that we're more global we can get food from all over the world but so that requirement means that things have to be done very methodically um, and with um, commercial agriculture, it's all done with big machines that have spe specific um, specifications and they do certain things to the soil when they sort of, um, what's the word, uh, till them. And, you know, so you get carrots that are bred for a certain reason or a, a certain, um, uh, what's the word I was trying to say earlier? Uh, for, a, for a specific function. So it could be resistant yeah. to a certain disease okay. in that area. The soil is managed in a way that makes it easy for that carrot to grow. The carrot will grow in a very specific amount of time and it produces a very specific kind of carrot. Um, and then that's what we get in the supermarket. And because of that, as a consumer, we've gotten used to seeing vegetables like that. Yeah. So when we see something from a local farmer that hasn't got a big machine, that grows stuff that isn't necessarily a hybrid, although most stuff you do buy in the shop is a hybrid anyway, um, their soil isn't going to be perfect. It might not be the best soil for carrots, but they've chosen to grow carrots. You all of a sudden see this bunch of carrots at the farmer's market. It's like, oh, that doesn't look like it does in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or Morrison's. And they all automatically think it's wrong. And so we've become out of touch with what food actually is. Mm. So you get this image in your head of what, it, what you're used to seeing. You see something different, which is essentially the same thing. Um, and then you grow to expect to see what you're used to seeing. So as consumers, we say, well, we only want apples to be that big. We want our carrots to look like this. Our courgettes can only be this big. And so supermarkets, what are they there to make money? So what do they do? They produce what the consumer wants. Mm. And they won't take stuff from farmers. It doesn't match what, they, what the people want. So it, it's a bit of a perpetual cycle. And I think, you know, there is a movement now where people are becoming more conscious of where their meat comes from, you know, if they choose to eat meat or where their food comes from or where their clothing comes from, all that kind of thing. And it's good because people become more educated and especially with food. And one of the things that attracts me about becoming a farmer the most is reconnecting people with their food because sure. people just don't know. They don't know how a carrot looks 
or how it grows or how long it takes to grow or what can cause a carrot not to grow or how a courgette plant looks and all those things are really really important mm. um i'm going to backtrack a bit here courgette when i the first time i saw courgette like i did here in the, the uk was when i moved here because when you buy courgettes in south africa they are about that big so 10 centimeters long you do not get big courgettes and that's another another way the market's developed in South Africa. You know, yeah. courgettes are bought as very small vegetables, whereas here you get them half, half the length of a ruler or a bit longer. That's just a market thing. And, you know, and, and companies will market the same product differently all over the world, depending on what yeah. the consumer wants. So I think it's great that supermarkets are selling wonky vegetables and mm. making people more aware of what vegetables actually are because especially with climate change, things are going to change. The food we eat is going to change. The food we'll have availability to well the stuff that's going to be available to us will be different you know yeah. um it's an interesting topic i get really passionate about yeah. it because it's just <laughs> like yeah um and that's what frustrates me about seeing the same varieties in, in the shops because this year especially a lot of people at our allotment site are growing these tomatoes that are like really long and cylindrical and i've never seen them before <clears throat> and you don't ever see those in the shops no. and i just think it would be great to have more variety but people need to be aware of it before they start seeing it as a normal thing. So, and that all comes back to reconnecting with food, understanding where it comes from and what, what goes into it and how it's grown and, yeah. and all, all that's available. You know, mm. there's hundreds of varieties of tomatoes and we see like four or five maybe yeah. because they've been bred to grow quickly to feed a lot of people, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think though it's, it's a little bit of um, a socioeconomic thing, but with, you've got... Um, shops like uh, M&S um, and Waitrose yeah. and then they do do these more sort of bespoke varieties of mm. things which is maybe great because it does sort of change people's perception like oh a carrot doesn't have to be orange mm. or a, a tomato doesn't have to be red and uh, you know round yeah so but then obviously that's just exposing you know a very small minority of society to what you know different varieties they, what what is possible and yeah. what's you know reasonable or, or yeah. you know or, you know possible so um so yeah it's, it's it's good that in some ways that they are kind of just trying to reflect the um the variety mm. and, and abundance that is out there but because it's not available to everyone mm. then people still get very kind of locked down like you were saying and what they come to expect as a consumer yeah what's normal and what's weird and i think also another thing is when things are covered in soil um, potatoes even something you, know, you can't get you know sort of just you know things in soil anymore yeah everything has to be squeaky clean so then that probably sort of um, intimidates people a little bit from growing their own but it's covered in mud and dirt <laughs> <laughs> How am I supposed to? it's like well, it doesn't really matter if there's a little bit of dirt on it probably do you a bit of good <laughs> uh, the amount of times I've pulled a carrot out of the allotment brushed it on my trousers and just eaten it I, wow it's, it's just, you know you get a bit of grit in your teeth but as long as most of it's off you know it's just well, soil I have you know? um, <laughs> dogs that run rampant around okay. <laughs> probably so not a good idea <laughs> I wouldn't uh, yeah I, I would do um, exercise caution yeah it's very sweet um one of the um, the Labradors we look after, Willow, she um, took her liking to the raspberries. So she was literally just helping us out really? to the raspberries off the lower <laughs> branches because we gave her a little taste one time and she took that as permission to help herself yeah. to whatever she could reach. So, yeah, if, if she'd been too near them, I'd 
definitely have to give them a bit of a clean. Yeah, <laughs> but, but but soil, you know, it's not going to do anyone you know a massive amount of harm. But yeah. but it's you know if we're not used to seeing it, mm. seeing our vegetables covered in it, then why would why would you think it was re- you know normal or safe to to consume it? Yeah. You wouldn't. So that's it. Yeah. It's a tricky one to overcome. I think it'll take a long time to get to that point, mm. you know, but it comes down to education. And, you know, this is something I've heard on another podcast a lot, but we live in, a, in an age of information where you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't pull a little device out of your pocket and find out anything you wanted. Mm. We've yeah. got it's so much power that we hold. And I think the more information that becomes available and the more people that are out there doing this and the more people that are um, teaching everyone about nutrition and what's true and what isn't, the easier it becomes for the general population to start understanding what is actually going on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. To, um... I'd probably be dead by now if I couldn't Google what was safe to eat and what wasn't <laughs> for my garden. I saw sweet peas growing. I thought they looked so cute and delicious. I was like, oh, they are toxic. Really? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. I Googled them. Now. People must... I, that, there must be more of a problem with it because they look like viable, edible vegetables. Yeah. But... Apparently they can be quite um, toxic. Well, tomato leaves are toxic. Yeah. yeah. I think rhubarb leaves are yeah. as well. You can get really unwell if mm. you have um, rhubarb leaves. You have to cut off a certain amount at the bottom as well. Um, I, I, I think, so what'll happen is if you eat just a small amount, you'll get like a tummy ache or something like that. Right, yeah. But if you accidentally have too much, you can, you can die. You know, it's pretty severe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> So we've been going for almost an hour now. Christ. On that on that note <laughs> yeah. of uh, doom and gloom and dying from your vegetables, maybe we should end yeah, it here. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's a good place. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the time, you know, and your Saturday afternoon. And hopefully, you know, we'll do this again sometime and talk more yeah, about vegetables. Yeah, have, have an update and, and see where, where things are at yeah. in the future. Cool. <laughs> see if I can kill any more things in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. See you later. So that's it everyone, hope you um, enjoyed listening to that podcast, I really had a, a good time recording it, it was really interesting chatting to Hannah about um, everything we spoke about really, and it's just nice to have interesting guests on that have a different perspective and have a bit more expertise in, in areas that I don't really have basically. Um, you know, hopefully next year uh, we can meet up with Hannah again, do another little podcast and maybe a video if she's okay with that of her garden and just see, you know, sort of how things are, are going on. If anyone would like to go follow Hannah, check her out on Instagram and on Facebook. On Facebook, um, her page is called The H Word, which um, I think stands for health. I'm not 100% sure. You yeah. uh, know, I think it's that though. And on Instagram, it's Hannah Howell PT and that's Howell with the two L's. Um, go go follow her and check what she's about and you know she puts some really good posts up and you know really knowledgeable posts as well and it uh, definitely beats seeing all the rubbish we see on Facebook these days you know all the videos of funny cats doing silly things anyway um, yeah that's it for this time I hopefully will uh, speak to you guys again soon enjoy the rest of your day see you later